Uh, Well, today uh, we are in Esther chapter 8. And so if you have a Bible, uh, why don't you turn there with me? Uh, For those of you who are are, are new, new to our gathering, newer to our gathering, uh, we've been studying Esther for much of this uh, past season. And simply put, uh, Esther is all about the hidden hand of God at work in a place and through people uh, we would least expect. And that's why it's such an encouraging book. I I hope that you found it to be encouraging because it gives us hope, but Esther also gives us help even when we don't see God moving or working uh, in our lives. And as we've gone through this book, we've been introduced to a variety of characters uh, and been brought into this great uh, story that's full of complexity, drama, uh, irony, courage, uh, and sudden turns. But now today, uh, as we jump into chapter 8, we find ourselves at what is probably uh, the most crucial moment of the entire story. Um, I feel like almost every week I've made a statement similar to that, but today is really it. (laughs) Um, You see, last week, as we studied through chapter 7, Uh, We saw that Haman, the prime minister, was outed. Um, He was exposed and therefore executed for his genocidal plan against the Jews. Uh, And if there was ever an illustration of pride leading to a person's downfall, it's the life of Haman. And so we took the time to learn from his life and from his example last week. Well, now we pick up the story. Uh, Haman is gone, but there's a a problem, a a significant problem. Haman's edict for the destruction of the Jewish people still remains in place. And so there is some significant unresolved tension here. You see, the problem we have is that a, a king's order A king's rule, his law, his edicts were irrevocable. Uh, They cannot be changed. And that might seem odd to to us, like, just change your mind, like, just get rid of it. But he can't. And that's largely due to the fact that Persian kings were seen as sort of these, like, demigods, okay, little gods. And so we have to understand that to... To change your mind, for a king to change his mind would, or, or, or to contradict himself would raise questions about who they are, about their status, about their identity, about their authority. And so this chapter, chapter 8, is all about how Esther solves what seems like an unsolvable problem. Uh, if you've been walking with us through this series... Uh, you know we've talked quite a bit about uh, the providence of God and how God is at work even when we don't see it. Uh, But today, the focus is going to be much more about our work, about our words, about our faith, and the role they play in God's story. Uh, What I want to look at is, if God is over and above everything, if he is providentially working, the question we have is, does what we do matter? 
Won't God do what he is going to do regardless of what I do or regardless of what you do? And so that's where we're headed. And what I hope that we all learn and see today is that how we live truly matters. Uh, Actually, a lot more than maybe we even think. And so let's start working through chapter 8. As we've done in the past weeks in this particular series, I'm going to walk us through this chapter, work us through this story. And then today, it's going to be really simple. There's going to be one main takeaway from today. All right, so let's jump into this together. Esther Esther chapter 8, starting in verse 1. This is what God's word says. On that day, King Ahasuerus gave to Queen Esther the house of Haman, the enemy of the Jews. And the king took off his signet ring, which he had taken from Haman, and he gave it to Mordecai. And Esther set Mordecai over the house of Haman. So we recall that just before this, um, Haman was executed as a traitor. You remember that? He, he built these gallows. His hope was to hang Mordecai on those gallows, but he is hanged on those gallows instead. He's executed, killed, hung for being a traitor. And we know that the property of traitors, of criminals, was often given to the crown, given to the throne. And so that happens right away here. Absolutely no time is wasted. His estate, his wealth is given over to Esther. And on top of that, we see Mordecai is rewarded by the king. And this is likely due simply because of his relation to Esther being her adoptive father. And so what we see right from the beginning of this chapter is this huge reversal of fortune here. We know that the king's signet ring was a symbol of his authority, of his power to rule. And so now Mordecai has been given this status, this position that Haman formerly had just the day before, moments before really. He's actually given the exact same ring that Haman was given in Esther chapter 3, I believe it's verse 10. Moreover, Esther rewards Mordecai as well. We see here that Esther, it says, passes Mordecai the estate that was just given to her from the king. And so if you've been tracking with the tension, with the plot, with the storyline so far, you know that what was just said is a completely unexpected reversal of things. It's been a crazy two days, a crazy last like 36 to 48 hours, right? No one could have seen this coming. And by the way, on top of that, there is absolutely no indication that anyone was praying for this to happen as well. This is an impossibility. And so it's clearly all God. It's all God. And in light of that, let me just make a quick aside here. I could have done an entire sermon on this point, but it's just going to be an aside. Um, Because this is just, what we just read, this is just a small but powerful illustration that nothing can stop God's purposes. 
Nothing can stop his plan. As Jesus himself says, right, all things are possible with God. With him, nothing is impossible. And, and this, I'll say, is gospel optimism. Let's call it that. Right? It's gospel optimism. And that's not to say that we're all guaranteed high positions. It's not to say that we are all guaranteed an inheritance of, of large estates. That's all in God's hands. But one of the things that's so crucial for me to point out is that it actually takes zero faith to look at a challenging or impossible situation or scenario and say, that'll never work. Um, That'll never happen. Uh, God can't do anything here. That doesn't take a redeemed heart. It doesn't take a new mind. It takes zero faith when finances are tight. Maybe there's a prolonged, unwanted uh, singleness. There's marital issues, unemployment, maybe a habitual sin that's, that's just grasping at you that will not let go. For us to look at those situations and say, nothing's going to change. God can't work here. That takes zero faith to see things that way. And listen, when we make judgments based on only what we can see, what happens in our life? Well, if you're anything like me, what happens is we typically stop praying. We typically stop trusting. We end up growing in fear without even recognizing it. And our faith flatlines. It becomes stagnant. And that is why over and over and over again, there's a call to remember in the scriptures, a call to not forget what God has done from the beginning of creation and what he promises to do in the end. To remember his good works, to not forget his faithfulness to all of his people time and time again. Why? Because life often feels like one impossible, discouraging situation after another, doesn't it? But remembering God's past faithfulness gives us courage to face current challenges with gospel optimism. Because with him, anything is possible. Even things that we could never dream of or think to pray for just like the situation that unfolds here in Esther. So that's my little aside here. It's my little side note. But back to the text. We're seeing this great reversal of things take place here, but there's one thing that the king didn't do. This was already mentioned. But for whatever reason, and we're not told why, at least right away, he doesn't reverse Haman's order for the genocide of the Jews. And so Esther needs to go back to him and plead for his help again. And this time what we see is that it's not very calculated. The first time she goes, remember there's three days of prayer and fasting, and then there's this very calculated plan. This time it's not that way. Look at verse 3. Then Esther spoke again to the king. She fell at his feet and wept and pleaded with him to avert the evil plan of Haman the Agagite. 
and the plot that he had devised against the Jews. When the king held out the golden scepter to Esther, Esther rose and stood before the king. So all of a sudden, the scene changes here. And we're not told the the whole story. But apparently, soon after Haman's death, Esther approached the king once again, and this is an important detail, she approached him once again uninvited. And we know she approached him uninvited because that's what the whole golden scepter thing is all about, right? Remember, we learned this lesson. We learned about this in chapter 5, that if if somebody entered into the king's presence uninvited, that person could be killed immediately, right on the spot, no questions asked, unless the king held out his golden scepter. Doing so was an expression of his mercy. Holding out his scepter was saying, I am allowing you graciously as the almighty king to be here in front of me. And so understand what that means is that Esther again, again, risked her life on behalf of her people. It's a detail that most don't see when we read this text. She risked risked her life once again. The first time, there's much more text, much more detail, but this is quick. But even though it's quick, let's not miss that this, again, is Esther being willing to take her life into her own hands. It's Esther approaching the king and begging for mercy, pleading before the king with faith. And then she asks, here's the request, verse 5. And she said, if it please the king and if I have found favor in his sight, and if the thing seems right before the king and I am pleasing in his eyes, let an order be written to revoke the letters devised by Haman the Agite, the son of Hamadatha, which he wrote to destroy the Jews who are in all the provinces of the king. For how can I bear to see the calamity that is coming to my people? Or how can I bear to see the destruction of my kindred? Now notice here, there's not this huge devised plan that's laid out, but Esther is very wise. She's very smart. Notice she doesn't make any reference here to what is right and what is wrong. To what is just and what is unjust. Because those are not categories that exist in the Persian Empire. There's no such thing. All she could do was to appeal to the king's self-interests. What is right in his eyes? What's right in his sight, what is good for him, what pleases him. And so Esther has been around long enough to know how to ask questions in a way that the king would respond favorably. So he responds to her, verse 7, Then King Ahasuerus said to Queen Esther and to Mordecai the Jew, so we're given a detail that Mordecai has entered into this throne room as well, 
Behold, I have given Esther the house of Haman. And they hanged him on the gallows because he intended to lay hands on the Jews. But you may write as you please with regard to the Jews in the name of the king and seal it with the king's ring for an edict written in the name of the king and sealed in the king's ring cannot be revoked. You have to love it uh, anytime you see a person speak of themselves that much in the third person, right? <laughs> um, there is a lot that's going on here. Um, Asher Eris is obviously a, a character uh, that thinks pretty highly of himself. But his words are actually good news. Really good news. He says yes to her request. Finally, this is the moment we've been waiting for. And so Mordecai doesn't waste any time. He calls the scribes together, the people who write the laws, and they begin to write a new edict. Verse 9, the king's scribes were summoned at that time in the third month, which is the month of Sivan, on the 23rd day. And so we're given another uh, marker here, another date. Uh, We know that the third month here is May or June on their calendar. So it's roughly the same time that we're in. At the same time, we know that Haman's edict was written in the first month. So if you're tracking with the story, what that means is that two months have passed since Haman's execution. Right? Two months between Haman being killed and Esther going to the king to beg him for mercy here. It must have been a really long wait, a very anxious time, right? But well worth it. And so finally, a new edict was written. We learn that in verses 9 through 10, that it was sent out, this new law, this new declaration was sent out to all 127 provinces in the empire. And it was written in every single language that existed in the empire. And it was sealed on top of that. And most significantly, it was sealed with the king's signet ring, meaning that the words that are written here are final. There's no going back. And what is the edict then? Verse 11, this is what it says, saying that the king allowed the Jews who were in every city to gather and defend their lives to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate any armed force of any people or province that might attack them, children and women included, and to plunder their goods on one day throughout all the provinces of King Ahasuerus on the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar. So this is... Mordecai's answer, his response to Haman. This edict, if you compare the two of them, and it's worth your time to do that, by the way, I'd encourage you to do that, but it was written deliberately to parallel the first edict, which also could not be reversed. And so there's a lot of overlapping language between these two. And so, whereas Haman's edict said on the 13th day of the 12th month, 
everyone can attack the Jews, women, children included, and take all of their goods, everything they have. This one says that on the same exact day, the Jews can defend themselves. So in effect, this is simply an edict for self-defense. That's how I would bottom line it. But notice as well, there are strict boundaries here. Strict boundaries to this edict. Notice, the Jews cannot initiate violence. They can only defend their lives. So everything is now written. Mordecai seals the order with the ring. And then the order is sent out by the carriers. And look at the response at the delivery of this news, this edict. It's verse 15. Then Mordecai went out from the presence of the king in royal robes of blue and white, with a great golden crown and a robe of fine linen and purple. And the city of Susa shouted and rejoiced. The Jews had light and gladness and joy and honor. And in every province and in every city, wherever the king's command and his edict reached, there was gladness and joy among the Jews. There was a feast and there was a holiday. So we see here there is rejoicing. There is shouting praise actually over Mordecai's leadership. And there's a very obvious, the author does this on purpose, there's a very obvious and intentional contrast between what Haman's edict looked like and the response of it, and now this edict and the response. Remember, after Haman's edict was sent out, what happened? There was sackcloth and ashes amongst all the empire. There was weeping and mourning everywhere. But here we see the contrast. There's now joy. There's feasting. There's a holiday. There's a lightness of heart. It's a time of celebration. And then chapter 8 ends with this. It's a very, very interesting verse. It says this, And many from the peoples of the country, in other words, those throughout the empire, declared themselves Jews. For fear of the Jews had fallen on them. And so here's some more irony from the book of Esther. This is crazy. Because let's remember, Esther at one time, this is a huge moment, right? Esther at one time kept her Jewish identity hidden because she was afraid. And Mordecai, her her adoptive father, right, Mordecai wanted her to do that as well, told her to do that as well for for, for fear. But now, look at this, everybody wants to be Jewish because they are afraid. Now, it could be that some were genuinely converted. Some were truly motivated to join God's people due to the turn of events, like they'd seen God work. But most likely, others were simply just motivated by fear of the Jews. Because it's so clear now who held the power. Who's in control. It's not King Ahasuerus even. It's Esther and Mordecai. But either way, 
when you, when you put all this together, when you pull everything together, I think you could say, rightly, that the theme of this chapter is reversal. Reversal. Reversal of fortune. Reversal of edicts, see here? Reversal of hope. And who is at the center of all of this? Who is right at the center of all of these reversals, other than God, I mean? Well, it's Esther. It's Esther, right? And that reality leads me to just one point that I hope we are able to see today. Just one. I told you again, today is simple. One point, and it's this. The life of Esther teaches us that our work is essential. That's it. It's where we're going today. There's no sub points. The rest of our time is here. The life of Esther teaches us, speaks to us, that our work is essential. In other words, what we do matters. You see, in a book with the major theme being the hidden hand of God or or the providence of God, it could be so easy to misunderstand our role, right? In other words, it's possible, I'll be very careful when I say this, but it is possible to overemphasize God's role. So much so that we end up underemphasizing our role. And that's not to say that this is like a, a 50-50 arrangement. Like God does 50% of the work, we do 50% of the work. I actually don't have a percentage for you, sorry. But it's just to say our work matters. What we do is essential. And when we overemphasize God's hand, we can end up making a subtle but very dangerous mistake. We can actually think that we are just pawns in the hand of God and that our choices really don't affect things. But thinking that way and living that way grossly misunderstands our lives, which is exactly what our enemy wants, by the way. See, our enemy, Satan, he wants to remove us from our own lives, actually. He wants to take us out of situations and circumstances to make us think that, to make us believe that we don't have any significance. That maybe other people matter, and maybe you're here and you think this, well, I don't know, I mean, that person matters. I can see that they have influence and significance, but not me. That, oh, I don't know, like, does it really matter if I compromise? Like, just once. It's just now and then. Like, God can certainly work without me. He's sovereign, right? He's good. He's, he's providential. Right? See, if we're not careful, Satan can actually twist the beauty of God's providence. That if we're not careful, we'll potentially miss out on the wonderful harmony, the balance of God's work coupled by our work for his purposes. See, here's the truth. God's work is primary and decisive. That's his providence. But our work 
is essential. That's our responsibility. It's not one or the other. It's both and. Now, of course, we know God can act on his own. But the vast majority of the time, he doesn't. Right? He has chosen in his goodness and grace to use our work in his unfolding work. He has chosen to use our imperfect words, our imperfect works, as a means to work out his perfect purposes. I mean, think about this, right? We've seen God's hidden hand move so much throughout the book of Esther. And I feel like I've mentioned that point about God working behind the scenes, his hidden hand, almost every single week of this series. But on top of that, think about the essential work of Esther, which we haven't mentioned up to this point. Like when Esther discovers the Jews are being faced with genocide, she decides to act. She calls for a feast. She makes a planned and purposeful uh, 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 second feast. She approaches the king. And even here in chapter 8, she tells the king who Mordecai is, which results in his promotion. She sets Mordecai over the house of Haman. And she puts her life on the line a second time when she begs the king to spare the life of all the Jews. So do you see what this means? God primarily does his supernatural, providential work through natural means. Now, does God work supernaturally? Of course, no doubt. We call those miracles. And as followers of Jesus, we should expect those I think a lot more than the majority of us do. But far more often, God works, we see this all throughout the scriptures, that God works supernaturally and providentially through natural means. And by natural means, I mean through the lives of his people. Our deciding, our speaking, our praying, our acting, our serving, our giving, right? our obedience. God uses our work. God takes our work to achieve his supernatural outcomes. And that's exactly what we see here all throughout Esther. Again, don't miss it. God is primary and decisive, but our work is essential. That's how God has set up reality to function. I mean, think about it, right? If, if Esther didn't respond, if she didn't call for a fast, if she didn't make a, a rescue plan, if she didn't exercise craftiness and, and wisdom, if she didn't approach the king twice, right, who knows what, have, what would have happened? We don't know. And you see, when we start to understand this, when we more fully see that our lives, our actions, our work, our words, when we see and learn 
that they are essential, that they can and are often used by God, that actually infuses our lives with power and meaning and purpose, all while we know whatever ultimately happens is due to his primary decisive work. And let's be clear. This is not a call just to live however we want to live and then pray that God blesses our life and our choices. I'm afraid that too many Christians live that way. But that's not this at all. This is a call for us to live every single natural day of our lives in prayer, in expectation, in obedience, and in faith that is rooted in dependence on him, rooted in the fact that we belong to him, that we need him. And by the way, this tension of God's work and our work is all throughout the scriptures. I'll just give you one example. It's 1 Corinthians 15.10. I think it's the best example. The apostle Paul says this. Look at this. He says, I worked harder than any of them. And who's he talking about? All the apostles. All the disciples. I love that. Paul's confidence, right? He's like, look, I worked harder than any of them. Bold statement. Paul is giving, in other words, he's saying, I gave full effort to Jesus. Sweat, blood, tears, everything I faced, right? The abuse, the persecution. I worked harder than anyone. Night and day for the gospel. But then he says this, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. He says, I worked hard, but it wasn't me. It was the grace of God in me. Meaning God's providence, again, God's providence and our work are directly connected, directly related. We work hard, but at the same time, it is God working in me. In other words, we work out what God is working in. It's both and, not either or. And let me give you some more examples of this, just so that we're really clear on this point. So for example, in salvation, how is a person saved? Well, we know God gives the gift of faith. He gives a new heart, but we must repent. We must believe and we must keep on believing to work out our salvation, right? Or we know that God places his spirit within us to lead us, to guide us. And the Holy Spirit that is within each and every one of us inclines us, sort of gently nudges us to love, to serve, to live for the gospel. But we simultaneously choose to love. We choose to serve. We choose to live for Jesus and his kingdom. See, God convicts us of sin. He actually warns us of sin and reveals to us again and again that he is more satisfying than sin. But you and I must put sin to death by faith. We do the turning. Or God gives us an appetite, a thirst for his word, a thirst to spend time with him. But you and I set the alarm. 
you and I wake up every morning and prioritize that time with him. See, God puts a generous spirit within you. He's done that. But you, you tangibly give of your first fruits. You give to those in need. And you choose to give to your local church. One more. God plants, he has planted a seed of courage, fearlessness, and boldness in you. But you must go out and share the gospel with your coworkers and with your neighbors. You following me this morning? The point is this, God's providence, his power that is working in the world to achieve his purposes does not minimize the urgency and necessity of us using our efforts for his purposes. Because listen, churches do not plant themselves. The gospel, the seeds of the gospel do not plant themselves. People do not counsel themselves. We don't just naturally drift into maturity and to godliness. We must work out what God is working in. God's work is primary. His work is decisive. But our work is essential. And listen, this is so important. Because misunderstanding this dynamic on either side can be devastating. And the majority of us fall in one of these two categories. Or at least we're tempted to. On the one hand, if you go too far in thinking of and thinking that, like, I need to work. Then you can be set off into this frenzy of activity. And your life can become all about earning and improving yourself to everyone around you, including God. And that's wrong. It's not the gospel. Nor how we should be living our lives as dependent finite, limited people who are called to rest and abide. But on the other hand, and I already mentioned this a little bit before, but on the other hand, if you go too far in terms of thinking that what you do doesn't matter, then you will wind up like so many individuals who call themselves Christians who become nominal in their faith. Who end up with a really apathetic faith. Who have a stagnant, flatlined faith that has no fruit at all to speak of and no life in it whatsoever. That's a really dangerous place. So we need to understand this this vital truth That God is at work. My my life, our lives are in his hand, even as my work is essential. And that reality, that that beautiful sort of uh, work of his his sovereignty and his providence and my work, that, that beautiful harmony there should move us to greater humility and trust, while at the same time lead us to faith filled action. It should lead us to bolder gospel risks, like Esther, knowing again that he, our God, is over it all. See, the Christian life 
It's actually meant to be a supernatural life. It's meant to be a a totally fulfilled life, a, a fruitful life. As we are led by the Spirit, as we are equipped by the Spirit, as we are empowered by the Holy Spirit. It should lead us to to live with hearts ready to work, hearts that are ready and, and wanting to serve, knowing that our everyday, ordinary lives do have meaning. They do have purpose. And maybe you're here today, and in terms of living by faith and and working for Jesus, you believe you've missed it. You've missed the mark. That you've wasted years. Maybe missed so many opportunities to serve him. Well, that's why Esther is such a great story for you and I. Because so did Esther. She was imperfect, made some bad choices, compromised her faith even. But ultimately, she chose to surrender her life to the Lord. And in that, God used her mightily. And so today, uh, if you feel like your, your faith has flatlined, if you feel like you're in this season where your faith is, is dry, it's stagnant, I hope this is a, a warning to you, but at the same time, let me try to stir your heart today. Let me attempt to uh, stir your affections by reminding you of the gospel. Think of this. Think of this. We live in a time that's very similar to Esther. Because an edict has gone out here as well. See, a a decree hovers over each and every one of our lives, and it's unchanging and it's irrevocable. And that edict is this that God's just judgment is coming for sinners. We talked about that last week. It's coming. For all who have sinned and who, for all who have fallen short of God's standard, which means every single one of us is under this edict because we have all rebelled in thought and in word and in action. No one can say that they are completely innocent, that they have done no wrong before a holy and righteous God. And so God's judgment, his edict, his declaration looms, it hovers over us, which means we too need someone to be our Esther. Someone who would put aside their comfort someone who would put, up, put aside their status, someone who would be willing to intercede on our behalf, someone who would even be willing to risk their life. And the good news of the gospel is we have a better, a greater Esther today whose name is Jesus. See, Jesus could have... He could have justly destroyed the earth and everyone on it because of our sin. But instead, God 
sent his son to leave the glories of heaven, to live our life, to die our death, and to rise again to secure our future with him forever. Listen, don't, don't miss this. The cross and the resurrection are God's counter decree. The cross is his counter edict, delivering his people from destruction and absolute just judgment. It looked like we were lost in our sin. But on the cross, Jesus reversed the edict and gave us his perfect righteousness. It looked like we would be stuck in darkness, without help, without hope, without God in the world. But on the cross, Jesus reversed the edict and now invites us into his marvelous light. It looked like we'd be forever enslaved to Satan's rule and his reign underneath his lies. But on the cross, Jesus reversed the edicts that we can now belong to him as free, set free sons and daughters of our high king. It looked like we'd be left in dishonor, shame, A dishonor and shame that we deserved, by the way. But on the cross, Jesus reversed the edict to secure our eternal glory, our eternal joy with him. See, the cross is the great reversal to which all of the reversals of Esther's story point us to. And by faith in Jesus and Jesus alone today, you can come under the edict of the cross and the resurrection. It's an edict that cannot be revoked, by the way. It cannot be thwarted. It cannot be changed. And under his edict, there's these great promises that you are fully loved, fully known, fully secure. There are these amazing realities under this edict of the resurrection and the cross that you are secure with a new heart, You have new hope. You've been given a new spirit. There are new promises. There's a new mission. There's new motives and purposes. And now a forever future so that now we know truly that our lives really matter more than we could ever know. There's no better news than this. There's no better edict. There's no better decree than the saving work of God through his son, Jesus Christ. And the more your heart is captivated captivated by this truth, the more you will understand that your life matters today. But also, how you live matters. How you live is essential. And so with that in mind, I'll just end with this. What step of faith might, be, might God be asking you to take today? What's your next step of faith? What is God doing around you? Maybe you pray this. God, I need you to, what are you doing around me 
in, in, in my circumstances, in my situation, in the people around me, that I could potentially join you in, God? What is that for you? Maybe it's something that he's calling you towards in this season. And you need to take steps of faith towards that thing. And maybe it's a significant risk. Or maybe it's a call away from something, like a particular sin. And it takes a step of faith. Maybe it's reshaping, or for some of you, restarting your prayer life. It takes faith. Maybe it's pushing you for the very first time to actually go out and share your faith, this good news, this edict of the gospel. Maybe your next step of faith is as simple as taking the next step here at your local church by serving or or by choosing to, to get involved in discipleship to some level. It takes faith. There's some risk. It takes sacrifice. What is he calling you to do? God's work is primary. It's decisive. But our work is essential. Just like Esther's. So today my prayer is that for every one of us here that we would allow that truth, that reality to humble us today. But more than that, I pray that it would move us towards deeper faith-filled living. God's work, our work. It's not either or, it's both and. Amen? Let me pray for you.